Correcting those small stat symbols and Greek letters using PowerPoint and Word can sure be challenging at times. Those Greek letters are sometimes hard to remember. You're listening to Buff Speak, the official podcast of the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. I am Dr. Nick Gerlich, your host, as we meet up with the thought leaders making an impact today. In the last 30 years, the demographics of higher ed have changed dramatically. Some of those changes have mirrored larger national population shifts, while others have reflected specific aspects of university life, like the imbalance of women to men and the arrival of older, non-traditional students. But perhaps the biggest change on American campuses is the recent influx of Hispanic students. West Texas A&M University is no different and has embraced this change. Our guest today is Dr. Leslie Ramos-Salazar, the Abdullah Professor of Business at West Texas A&M University and faculty advisor to ALPFA, the Association for Latino Professionals for America. Leslie, explain your role in the College of Business as we welcome an increasingly diverse student body. As a Latina and a first-generation professor, I think my role as an advisor of Alpha has enabled me to empower Hispanic students with resources and opportunities, whether in person or online. I've become quite resourceful over the years and more knowledgeable about connecting students with scholarships, internships, and job opportunities. And employers nowadays are very interested in hiring diverse talent from colleges of business. So I've also been working hard on making Hispanic students proud of their language, understanding both English and Spanish, and also about their culture, to see it as an asset or something to be proud of. Leslie, what is your story? Well, I was born and raised in Los Angeles in California. My mom is from Mexico and my original dad from Honduras. And from then on, I actually started the school system in Mexico for a couple of years. So everything was in Spanish, the math classes, the basic literature history. And then I came back to Los Angeles after that, got reintegrated into the school system. And but at the time, I didn't really speak English. I actually struggled with it. So I would go and try to listen to tapes and stuff like that to kind of pick up on it. And so they actually put me in the ESL uh, classroom so that I could pick up on the English. But I think overall, I ended up learning a lot about just the English language and feeling more comfortable. And I saw the benefit of going to school. So I kept at it. I mean, I kept going. I mean, I went in and pursued a undergraduate degree at Cal State University, Long Beach. I was encouraged because they said, well, so you got your high school diploma. What now? So I went in and I applied and I was so excited at the time. And then on, I continued taking a bunch of courses and I ended up loving school. I didn't like high school, but I really like college. So I put a lot of energy there. And then it was until one professor said, hey, you're actually really smart. You should apply to grad school. And I said, oh, I never thought about that. So I went in and applied to grad school. So I got my master's degree in organizational communication with a kind of little bit of interpersonal. 
And then after that, a couple of years, then I went on to get a PhD. So one of my professors at the time, Dr. Bippe, said, hey, I think you should apply for a PhD. Um, and I didn't know. I knew I wanted to teach. I was going to go to the community college because that's all you need is a graduate degree. So I said, hey, I could just go and teach at any community college right now. But she said, no, I think that you do have the kind of thinking that you will be successful with a PhD. So I applied and I ended up at Arizona State University, which was amazing. I, I learned so much there. And after that, I was just knew that I wanted to be a professor. And I'm just so excited to be here at WT because, you know, I, I get to teach, I get to do research, I get to serve. So I feel like I'm always growing every single year. So you are truly first-generation-born America in your family, and yet you have a little bit of a Spanish accent. How did that happen? So yes, I, I am the first generation of my family. So my accent came more because my first language was actually Spanish. Uh, my mother only spoke Spanish, so because of that, I only understood Spanish. And that was all I had. All my relatives would speak Spanish. However, once I learned the English, then I became more proficient in the writing and the speaking, but, but I never lost the accent. So what is life like in America for Hispanics who are you know, recent immigrants? I think that it's very challenging, very hard, because they have so many barriers. The language, first of all, they might not understand just basic things of getting resources or even getting jobs. So it's very difficult for them. Um, they also struggle sometimes with the economic, um, just being able to just feed their family sometimes or... Other times they have different challenges, such as the, the way they get treated. Um, there's a stigma there that they get because they're immigrants, then maybe they're not assimilating to society in general. So that sometimes is very hard for them. And how about your parents? How did they adapt to the U.S.? Well, for my mother, she adapted because she, she, had a, she used to work at a nursery. Um, and gardenia. So she loved plants. So she would treat them and nurture them and care for them. And the whole nursery, they all spoke Spanish. So she didn't really have to adapt as much. And when she was confronted with English, then she ended up taking English, a little bit of English classes. She got her citizenship. And to her, that was her big moment. I've been here long enough to have taught many Hispanic students. And, and I quickly observe that by the time uh, a student is third generation American, you know, born in the U.S., they have absolutely zero Spanish accent, and they're lucky if they can even understand abuela. That is so true. So sometimes what happens, some families just try to protect their children um, against just the way that they're treated because of the language. So some families, what they'll do is they'll just teach them English and try to get them to assimilate better with the main culture. So that is part of the reason why sometimes when they're down the line in many generations, they lose that language. And even some of the original cultural traditions, sometimes those don't get passed down. How important do you think it is for people in our part of the country to know at least some Spanish? 
I think it's very important nowadays with the increase of the demographics being Hispanic and um, a lot of businesses now hire people that speak Spanish because a lot of their clients do speak Spanish. And if they're going to be successful, they need to adapt. In 2008, Title V of the Higher Education Opportunity Act stated that an HSI or Hispanic serving institution is an accredited degree granting public or private nonprofit institution of higher education that has 25% or more total undergraduate Hispanic full-time equivalent student enrollment. That's a mouthful. I remember then that WT made it a goal to reach this level, and we did so rather quickly, both at the university and college of business levels. But what does meeting federal criteria like this mean for students and the university at large? I think this means that we need to make sure to provide the support to the students. We cannot continue to adopt the same practices or we will struggle to retain these students. The university will need to adapt to tailor to the needs of the Hispanic students because they're a big demographic slice at the campus. This can include hiring more diverse faculty and staff, training administrators, staff, and faculty on serving these special populations and provide them with resources to help Hispanic students just feel safe and comfortable. How do we go about creating equity for and advancing the success of Latino students? I just completed the ACU certification on inclusive teaching and equitable learning. And one thing I learned is that as educators, we need to reflect on how our identities impact our own teaching of these Hispanic students. We all have biases and stereotypes of what Hispanic students are like and make assumptions about them, which can hurt their performance. We need to reflect on our own biases by treating each individual student as an individual and truly get to know them as people. I also learned that we need to view diverse students with an asset-based mindset. So this just means that to view Hispanic students as an asset to our classrooms and the university at large. According to recent data, there are 559 HSIs in the U.S. with 393 more emerging HSIs or institutions nearing the threshold. And while those 559 represent 66% of all Latino undergraduates, it represents only 18% of all higher ed institutions. What are the challenges of reaching a much higher percentage of American universities attaining HSI status? There are so many challenges, including the lack of diversity in some regional and state areas. For instance, there's just really low diversity in states like Iowa or Utah. Also, some parts of the U.S. make higher education less accessible to different groups with different socioeconomic backgrounds. The high cost of higher ed is also a great challenge. So is there a geographic concentration of HSIs? Definitely, yes. Most HSIs will be found in states with high Hispanic representation, such as California, New York, Florida, Texas, and New Mexico. The U.S. Census Bureau reports there are 62.1 million Hispanics, or 18.7% of the population. It's an ambitious goal to reach 25% of a university's enrollment. Uh, while this is likely very attainable in parts of the U.S., like you said, where Hispanic populations are highest, what is the broader trend for U.S. population 
do you think we will reach 25% Hispanic overall? I think the Hispanic population as a nation is going to continue to grow. And I do think that it's just a matter of time and we will even exceed that percentage. I suspect that many Hispanic students are first generation, uh, just as you noted, your first gen Latina professor, uh, and therefore the very first in their families to attend university. Is this true? And if so, are there any specific needs that first gen Hispanic students have compared to the rest of the first gen students we continue to serve at WT? Yes, a high percentage of Hispanic students tend to also be the first generation. First-gen Hispanic students need social support or just someone they can just go in and talk to about their personal struggles. First-gen Hispanic students are afraid to ask questions about classes or college in general, and they need someone to mentor them. Most do not like to ask for help, even when they really, really need it. I have read that Latinos tend to be highly group-oriented and specifically with a high degree of loyalty to family. How do Hispanic families view higher education, and are there any differences vis-a-vis Anglos and other ethnic groups? Hispanic families do value education. It's ingrained in them. They understand that education is the key out of generation poverty and the key to accessing many opportunities. However, families who did not have the opportunities to go and get a higher education have no idea what college is about, whereas Anglo families sometimes tend to have a better idea of what college is by what they've seen on the media or through experiences of some of their family members. Hispanic families may also not be aware of how to support students in college or how to advocate for them. Some Hispanic families only speak Spanish, and this becomes a barrier to advocating or supporting the students. And what do our Hispanic graduates do once they graduate? Do they blend in with all the other graduates, or do they return to their hometowns and families? Some Hispanic graduates go on and get hired, either in other states such as Colorado and New York, and those that are family-oriented tend to seek employment close to home in Texas so they can stay close to their families. The international Hispanic students are more likely to return to their families back home. One of the most rewarding experiences for me each year is seeing our graduates walk across the stage. I notice when many Hispanic students' names are called, the families erupt in loud applause. I can feel that familial pride because it's oozing. Have you felt that before? Yes, I feel that pride when my Hispanic students graduate, especially when I know their personal struggles and what they had to go through in order to get to walk on that stage. I also attend the donning of the stole ceremony of WT every year, and I serve as a translator. I notice that most family members of Hispanic students do show up, and when family members speak of the challenges, you see tears in the eyes of the audience. One can really tell that families feel very proud of the achievements of these graduates. Leslie, where are we going from here? We live and work in a state with 39.7% Hispanic population, and in the Amarillo area, it's 33.1%. How high can we go in the College of Business and at WT? By 2030, the U.S. Census Bureau projects that Hispanics will grow by 21.1% 
from what it is today. So I do think that Hispanic percentage will continue to increase over the next decade. I think we can go even higher than 30% by the end of this decade. After the break, we'll take a look at some of Leslie's prolific research. It's one thing to be a disseminator of knowledge, but it's quite another to be a creator of it. The MBA is the most popular graduate degree in the United States and with good reason. It leads to better jobs, promotions, and salary increases. At the Paul and Virginia Engler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, our MBA program is entirely online for when you're ready to make that move. With as few as 31 credit hours and specializations offered in five areas, you can fast track your career in as little as 18 months. Whether you're looking for promotion or initial job placement, you'll stand head and shoulders above the competition. And because we've been teaching online since 1997, we're not the new kids on the block. Trust your education and career to dedicated faculty who are not only experts in their fields, but also old pros in the online arena. Our consistently high rankings say it all. A GMAT waiver is available. We're AA CSB accredited and among the most elite of business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT MBA in hand. For more information, find us at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2500. From the Texas panhandle to the world, we're here to help you reach those stars. Leslie, your CV is one of the most impressive I've ever seen. You're not even a decade out of grad school, and already you have 36 refereed publications and 10 book chapters. Many academics would be content to call that a career, but I suspect you are truly only getting warmed up. Before we dive into your articles, tell us about your dissertation. After all, that's every academic's first defining research moment. What did you study and what did you find? First off, thank you for the generous compliments. I appreciate it. Um, my dissertation was about developing a compassionate communication skill. I wanted to measure how people communicate with compassion when another person is suffering. I found that people communicate compassion in conversations, using touch like a hug, and through messages like email. I was able to find that compassionate communication was related to compassion, feelings of empathy, emotional intelligence, and negatively related to being aggressive verbally and narcissistic behavior. Ultimately, the scale is very reliable, but it still needs a little more validation. While we are all taught many tools to put in our research toolbox, it seems likely we gravitate towards certain tools as our go-to methods. Are you more of a quantitative researcher or qualitative? I see myself as a quantitative researcher. However, currently, I've been doing a little bit of qualitative. Personally, I was trained with a social scientific background using correlation, multiple regressions, structural equation modeling, and instrumentation. However, I am aware of qualitative approaches like focus groups and interviews. One of your recent publications centered on work-life balance of faculty in higher ed. This has to be one of the most difficult aspects of the profession. Those who are not familiar with the rigors of academia and the three broad areas in which we are evaluated each year may dismiss our 
careers as being easy and, oh, and with four months of vacation, we know better, of course. What did you find in this study to help explain what can be considered the dark side of being a professor? Well, being a professor is not an 8 to 5 p.m. job. Professors need to be available nowadays, nights, weekends, holidays, and this reduces the time they spend with their family. Professors with children or caregiving responsibilities struggle the most with balancing their time. What kind of support can a university offer to help maintain some semblance of work-life balance for its faculty? Universities can provide workshops or trainings related to time management and work-life balance to help faculty adapt and become better at just balancing their work and personal lives. This can help them to achieve more tasks in less time. Um, a university can also offer a mental health day where a faculty member can just choose a day where they just don't need to show up and no questions asked. This can help reduce the amount of burnout and excessive stress and also just providing resources such as daycare and embracing flexibility in terms of work hours and the academy. Many years ago, when I was doing my dissertation at a flagship state university, I had a ringside seat to the dissolution of my chair's marriage and saw another committee member be let go because his research was simply not up to standards. The effects on their respective families were profound and it influenced me to seek out universities that had what I perceived to be a more realistic balance of work and life. Do you think your findings today are generalizable across all universities, or are there some limitations? It's not possible to generalize to all universities because this was just a cross-sectional qualitative interview study. It just means that it happened at one time and it only in one university. However, I think that the findings and implications from this study can inform best practices and inform future policies of state universities. In another recent paper, you examined work-life conflict predictors among IT worker satisfaction. That's a pretty narrow range of subjects, but the subject matter itself is timely. U.S. workers receive only about half as much vacation time as counterparts in Europe, and we work 40 or more hours a week. How did you collect your data, and what did your research discover? The data was collected using data from a Fortune 500 company in the IT division through the Work, Family, and Health Network. The study showed that IT employees who struggled with their work and family lives also felt stressed out and burned out. And this is why they were just less satisfied. However, the supervisors that were supportive of the employees' family lives and when the climate of the division just felt supportive, of those employees who struggle with work-life balance, it just led to an increase of job satisfaction among these employees. Now, although your data set was necessarily limited, do you think that any of this could be generalized across the broader population of workers? Working on IT is quite stressful. While the study is not generalizable to other professions, these findings can be replicated in future studies using other stress-inducing careers, such as healthcare and law. How can companies work to minimize the factors negatively associated with satisfaction and maximize those that are positively associated with it? 
Companies can start by adjusting their policies to help IT employees cope with burnout and stress and train their supervisors to be supportive of the family life of IT employees by offering flexible hours and rewarding good colleague behavior. For instance, if a colleague calls in and they fill in for another person, this can create a positive work-life culture. What other research projects do you have going on right now? One project is looking at cyberbullied faculty in the academy during the COVID-19 pandemic, and this was via email and Zoom. Another project right now is going under data collection at WT, looking at undergraduates' perceptions of how they work with their finances and student debt. And another one is looking at healthcare workers, burnout, and well-being. So I have to ask, do you sleep? You know, actually, I do. <laughs> I sleep eight <laughs> hours every night. And, and tell me a little more about this cyberbullying project. So this one was a survey approach, and we asked questions to the faculty about how they were being cyberbullied. So this was only inclusive of faculty that said that they were cyberbullied. So we looked at were they cyberbullied by administrators, by colleagues, by students or staff. And we found that that the faculty that were being cyberbullied actually end up being less satisfied with their job, and this will make it really hard to retain faculty. However, those faculty that were knowledgeable about how to handle the cyberbullying, they were actually better off because they know how to address it, so that didn't affect their satisfaction. And did you do any other studies related to COVID in any way, shape, or form? I just fin finished a revision, and it was looking at students' grit during the pandemic, and it was looking at students that have high grit levels that were first generation ended up having increased enhanced well-being, and also they were better at performing academically, whereas those with low grit, meaning they lack the perseverance and the effort when they encounter a challenge, such as failing a quiz or a test. So the grit ended up being an important factor in the study. And just maybe even a little bit off topic, but still very much uh, germane to what we're uh, discussing here. How did COVID change academia for students, professors, all of us? That's a very difficult question. So I think that it made it more challenging because we had to adapt to certain technologies during the pandemic. We had to use Zoom or Microsoft Teams, and some faculty were not prepared to adapt. And from the student side, they also struggled because it was just not the same thing learning in class versus learning through the Zoom. And it was really hard to maintain the student attention um, during the pandemic. And do you think we'll ever return to the way things were before the pandemic? I hope so. <laughs> I think that we will. I think that it will take maybe a, a couple more semesters or so. I think that that, that is possible. How does being an active researcher affect your ability to teach your classes? Well, I, I tend to use the articles that come out from my scholarship to inform the students. So in statistics, I will give them an example of a study, and then the students will see, oh, that's how it's used. So that is beneficial to the students. 
When we come back, we'll dive into the choppy waters of statistics and critical thinking. There's a reason why our programs are rated so highly by independent reviewers. We are committed to continuously improving what we do. Whether it is in the classroom or online, the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business strives to stay ahead of the curve, not behind it. Join us in the classroom or online and see the difference. We're WCSB accredited and among the most elite business schools around the world. Reach for the stars and do it with a WT business degree in hand. For more info, find us online at wtamu.edu slash cob or call 806-651-2525. From the Texas Panhandle to the world, we are here to help you reach for those stars. My favorite undergrad class was statistics. I know that makes me weird, but I was always a bit of a math nerd and when I took this course back in 1979, I realized that stats is a language. Like beautiful prose, it can be used to express absolute truths. But like all languages, it can be used for evil to twist and turn truths into rubbish. One of the best books I have read in the last few years is A Field Guide to Lies, Critical Thinking in the Information Age by Daniel Levitin. But it's really just a look at how statistics are used and misused by many people. Among the numerous courses you teach, business statistics is one of them. Leslie, how do you teach more than just the mechanics of statistical analysis and train people to be critical thinkers? I use a problem-solving approach by going over the problems that can be best solved using a logical approach. I like to assign Excel case studies that help students use a data set to identify whether their preliminary conclusions are supported by their analyses of that data set. So when students come up with their own questions and hypotheses, I find that they're more invested in those projects. And yet so many people in the general public do not know that correlation does not necessarily mean causation and that there's a big difference between the median and the mean. Do you ever find yourself wanting to correct people on the news and on social media? Yes, all the time. I see so much misinformation out there, especially social media. For instance, during the pandemic, there was an article of people consuming bleach and eating horse pills as treatments for COVID-19. And I just felt terrible that people were believing all this stuff. It's no secret that many people are math-phobic. How do you remove the bitter taste from a difficult subject and make it taste better? I like to use several videos that break down each formula by little tiny bits. And I do like to give them practice opportunities. This helps build the student's confidence. I let the students know that it's normal to make mistakes. We all make it. I even make it. And that is the way we learn. I also do my best to explain the material in a way that sounds less intimidating. Sometimes it almost seems criminal to me that we wait until students are pretty far along in university before teaching them this most fundamental course. And even then, it's not a required course for all majors. What can we as a society be doing to educate everyone a little younger? It seems that people who only took algebra in high school are wondering when they will ever use it as adults. Yet an understanding of statistics, which 
necessarily uses algebra would be a lot more beneficial. Some high schools right now are offering AP statistics, but only few students benefit from that. Middle schools and high schools can incorporate a required statistics course that teaches them the preliminary basics before they get to college. But it goes deeper than simply not understanding statistics. Few people know even basic research methods, and it, it leads to many common misunderstandings like that you could stand on a street corner and interview people who happen to randomly come along. We know better, of course. Or, or that when nationwide polls are conducted and conducted properly, it is no fault of the researcher if they didn't ask you your opinion. That's the difference between a sample and a population. How do we get around this? I think we need to promote statistical literacy as a country. This will help people make better choices. Statistical literacy means that we encourage the population to read books and listen to talks relevant to statistics, or just attend statistics workshops or take statistics courses. During COVID, we were confronted with an endless stream of research, the vast majority of which pointed toward very clear recommendations, and that is social distancing, masks, and vaccines work. They're not perfect, but they work. Yet some people love to promote an outlier study with contradictory findings. How do you educate people that inconsistent findings do happen, but that doesn't mean you throw the baby out with the bathwater? I tell people that one study is not good enough to prove something or to be generalized in all settings. Mixed results generally means that we still do not have a definite answer. A compilation of evidence from varied studies does help to support a claim. I find it interesting to watch people playing the lottery or feeding money to slot machines and blackjack dealers in casinos. It's rather obvious by the glitz and glamour of the casinos that the house wins most of the time. It's also pretty clear that few people win the lotto. Yet all we hear about are those who do win, and then, with hope running roughshod over rational thought, we decide to take a chance anyway. Why do people have such a hard time understanding odds and continue to think they are going to overcome them? I think people are dreamers. They see someone win, and they want to see themselves be that winner regardless of the odds. They figure, this might be my one lucky day. Why not go for it? When they buy that one ticket or they play in that slot machine, they get an emotional high that just gives them a glimpse of hope to escape out of their reality. The odds are hard to understand because probability concepts are just not taught to the general public. So this makes it easy for casinos and other companies to take advantage. I'm almost to the point of concluding that critical thinking and rational thought are simply unfashionable, that some people rather like it like being unrational or irrational because it makes their life a little more interesting. I can see how some might say it would be a boring existence to just be able to assess a situation and dismiss it out of hand because you see through the smoke screen or to shy away from games of chance because you know you're most likely going to lose. What are your thoughts on this? 
I think if we approach games and the lotto as just entertainment, we are good. I think games are quite fun. However, the danger comes when we expect to get something great from playing, and then we end up losing a ton of money or becoming addicted. Leslie, if you could write the curriculum for university, how much statistics would you require of everyone? Personally, I think students should take at least one statistics course as part of their curriculum. However, in an ideal world, we would have two statistics courses, one that covers the basics and the other that covers more advanced topics. So that will allow us to provide them with more service learning opportunities. What about econometrics? That was always one of my favorites. Is that a good class? Yes, definitely. That would be another good option for students. And multivariate stats, lots of regression and the kinds of stuff that we academics just love, right? Exactly. Our guest today has been Dr. Leslie Ramos-Salazar, the Abdullah Professor of Business, a rising star in academia and certainly at the Angler College of Business. Give us your best shot, Leslie. Teaching stats is not just about numbers, but about getting people to reason and think logically to make better business decisions. You've been listening to Buff Speak from the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University. Our executive producer is Justin Lovell, and Allison Hunter is our associate producer. Our co-editors are Maverick Evans and Paul Torres. Lindsay Bjork is our director of marketing and outreach initiatives, which includes overseeing Buff Speak. Dr. Jeffrey Babb is director of accreditation and is our technical consultant. Finally, Dr. Amjad Abdullah is dean of the college. You can find us online at wtamu.edu cob for more information about our programs. Be sure to check out our many academic offerings. Come for the quality, stay for the small classes, affordable tuition, and friendly approachable professors. And look online at our faculty blog, profspeak.com, for more insights. You can listen to BuffSpeak on your favorite podcast portal, as well as on our website, buffspeak.biz. And if you like what you've been hearing, don't be afraid to share us with your friends, colleagues, and family. Word of mouth has always been the best form of advertising. Until next time, love one another. For the Paul and Virginia Angler College of Business at West Texas A&M University, I am Dr. Nick Gerlich. And as always, go Buffs! Buff Speak.